All right, we're going to get through Acts chapter 7, Lord willing, this morning. This scene took place in Washington, D.C., um, in the metro station on a cold January day 10 years ago. Uh, this man with the violin played, for, uh, played six different Bach uh, pieces. It took about 45 minutes. And during that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, and most of them were just on their way to work. Some passed by and stopped for a few seconds, others for a couple minutes. A few children stopped and tried to listen, but were quickly pulled away by their mothers. The musician played continuously for 45 minutes. Only six people stopped and listened to, uh, to it for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $32. When he finished playing, no one noticed and no one applauded. There was no recognition at all. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians that we have alive today in the world. And he played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written on a violin that cost three and a half million dollars. Two days before, Joshua Bell played in a sold-out theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100 a piece to listen to him play the same piece of music. You guys see, when Jesus came the first time, many in Israel, including most of the religious leaders, completely missed it. Completely missed it. So let's turn to Acts chapter 7. And here this morning as we go through... We're going to look into the life of this young man, Stephen, once again, which really brings him face to face with a very costly mistake that Israel made 2,000 years ago. You see, in our study last week, we got to look at Stephen, and he was a man that was really full of life. That's something I pray for you guys, I want for all of us, because Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly, didn't he? And Stephen was a man who was full of faith. We saw that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of power. Stephen started as a deacon. He was waiting on tables, making sure the Hellenist widows were taken care of, getting their portion of the food needed. And then we found him in the synagogue of the freedmen, a very popular um, uh, verse that we see back in chapter 6, verse 9 there, um, from all over the region. They went there. So Stephen was now uh, there in the synagogue, and he was preaching Christ as the Messiah. And once again, the religious leaders, they took offense to that. Okay? What was that 2,000 years ago? They didn't understand. There wasn't tolerance in that day. Hmm. If we preach Christ today, <laughs> is their talent has much changed? No. It seems like Jesus is the only thing that offends. Anything goes today in our culture except the truth of the gospel. So, Stephen, uh, he was dragged off. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. Again, that's that Jewish uh, Supreme Court. 
71 of the most powerful men in all of Israel. Stephen's brought in before them, led to the high priest, which was Caiaphas at the time, which presided over the, the trial of Christ also. So the false witness, uh, witnesses were brought in uh, to say that Stephen was speaking against Moses, that he was speaking against the temple. They were lying. Only way they could get them. Uh, we also saw in chapter 6, verse 15, it declares that these accusations, they were being made up, but as he was uh, going through that, even though they were lying about him and giving false testimony, his face was shining like an angel. How cool, right? Um, and they were all in awe of that. And that is when Caiaphas breaks the silence here in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Oops. <laughs> you see, Stephen does what he does here in response is absolutely fascinating. He is going to give these rulers in Israel a history lesson. And the key point that he is going to lay forth to these religious leaders, this council, is this. That the religious leaders of Israel have a long history of not recognizing the deliverers that God sent until they came the second time. So he's going to use Moses and Joseph as his primary witnesses, but he's also going to call on Abraham, Solomon, and Amos to the stand. So Stephen is going to make a defense for his position, not so much that he might be spared of false accusations, but rather to further prove that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And in the course of his defense, two amazing things are going to happen. Okay? First, the tables are turned. Okay? As Stephen goes from being the one on trial to putting these religious leaders on trial. And secondly, he's going to go uh, vividly illustrating and really showing them the pursuing heart of God after rebellious, sinful man. So as we work our way through this passage, we're going to learn five important principles here. And one from each witness that directly applies to our walk today in Christ. So no better place to start than where the nation began, and that was with Abraham. Look at verse 2. And he said, Brethren... And fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to Father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. Now, in this call to Abraham, there are three phrases that are significant here. God said in verse 3, get out of your country. Secondly, from your relatives. And thirdly, come to something new. So that's what he's laid before Abraham. And Stephen is wanting them to see by using Abraham as an example here is that from the very beginning, they have been a called out people. Us Jewish people, God started with our father Abraham. He's called us out Okay, now the Lord is calling them out of Judaism into something new. 
You see the relationship with God through his son Jesus. And the point that Stephen is making here is that Abraham uh, is, well, they shouldn't be surprised at all that God would send a prophet in the midst of, <laughs> of them in, to do something new. This is what has happened in the past with our God. This is what he's done before. This shouldn't be a strange thing when Jesus came and what he spoke. So that is what God does, saints. His light shines through. Saints are called out ones, right? Separated from the world. That's what saint means, separated from the world unto God. Not just from, but put to something. So the point Stephen is making here, this is how the nation began. Abraham was called out, called unto so what did Abraham do? He obeyed the call. That is all he did. He obeyed God. He stepped out in faith, believing in God. Did Abraham know how everything was going to shake out? What it was going to look like? All that God was going to do through him because of his obedience? He just obeyed. Obeyed God. So described as faith, okay, what he did, it was described as faith. We see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament taught. And this is Stephen's second point in using Abraham as a witness. Abraham entered into a faith-based relationship with God. It has always been about faith-based relationship. You get saved by grace through faith. Look at verse 4. And from there, when his father was dead... He moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So Abraham walked by faith, believing God, entering into the land of promise. So why would you be surprised that God would call you out to something and something new? Call you to walk by a faith-based relationship. That is what has been done since the beginning with our people. Why don't you get this Sanhedrin, you religious leaders? God's not changing the way he's done things. He's always done. This is how it's begun. Do you guys see what Stephen is trying to argue here with them? And then in verse 8, then he gave him the covenant of the circumcision. Okay, um, It wasn't until Abraham stepped out in faith, believing in God, that God gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So this is what Stephen is saying to these religious counsel and they're not getting it okay well they're getting it <laughs> they can't argue it 
but it's because they're very upset, okay? They're upset where he's going. By the end of the sermon, we're going to see what the, how upset they got. But what he is saying to them is this. You boast in Abraham, but uh, you're not, you know nothing about him. You don't get Abraham because you boast in the things that Abraham never boasted in. Abraham never boasted in no temple. He had no law. He had no circumcision at the beginning. And he had none of these things to accuse me of which, <laughs> uh, of speaking against. So Abraham did have uh, this personal relationship with God. And doesn't God refer to Abraham in the scriptures as what? A friend. That is so cool. You guys are missing it. God wants relationship. He wants friendship with us. So you think it's because you have a physical tie to Abraham as descendants, as Jewish people. You know, you know not what his life was about. In reality, you don't know anything that it was about. And you will not know what Abraham uh, was about until you're ready to live by faith and not by works until you are ready to live a faith-based relationship with God, not a works-based relationship to God. Because works get us what, guys? Nothing. Nothing. That's what the Bible teaches us. It's all Him. It is all Him. And we trust in Him. And by faith, we receive this gift from Him and we come into relationship. So right now, you have a relationship with the law of Moses. You have a relationship with this temple, just a building of God. Everything but God. That's what he's accusing them of. So all I'm asking you to do, you religious leaders, is what God asked Abraham to do in the beginning, to come out and live by faith. That is what the testimony of Abraham teaches us today. God has called us into a relationship with him, one that is based upon faith and faith alone. Abraham believed in God and we're told he was justified because of it, just as if he never sinned. He was justified because he had that faith. And just like Abraham, God calls us out of the world unto himself. So God called us out, okay? And he's called us what? To friendship. And he finishes that. Okay, he finishes with Abraham. He says, thank you very much, Abraham. You may step down. Now I want to call Joseph to the stand. Look at verse 9 in the patriarchs. Okay, leaders, just like these men of the Sanhedrin were leaders, becoming envious. They sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Do you guys recall this story? Okay, Joseph's older brothers were envious of Joseph. Our daddy Jake loves Joe the most. Look at the coat he got. Let's sell him because of a coat. I mean, <laughs> they were jealous, right? Now, it had been apparent uh, to many, including Pilate, that these religious leaders were envious of Jesus. He moved with power, okay, with popularity. Well, like Jesus, Joseph's brothers delivered him out of envy. But God was with him, and that's all that mattered. Okay? And evidence of that, look at verse 10, that God was with him. It says, God delivered him out of the hand of his troubles, 
and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So after some time of being a slave in prison, God blessed Joseph. He interpreted a dream, gave counsel, and prepared Egypt for seven years of famine. And Pharaoh, you're the man. (laughs) I'm putting you in charge of everything. You'll be second in all the land, Joseph. And for times, uh, things looked bleak for Joseph, but God had a plan, didn't he? Look at verse 11. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent uh, out our fathers first. And the second time, I want you guys to catch this, the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. So here's the point. Pattern started with Joseph where our leaders didn't recognize God's deliverer until they came a second time issue with the jews today they don't recognize the first coming of jesus they just don't see it they're still looking for their messiah the bible tells us that the that when jesus comes a second time that the eyes of the jews will be opened then and they will realize what they missed the first time and then stephen goes on look at verse 14 he says then joseph sent and he called his father jacob and all his relatives to him 75 people so jacob went down to egypt and he died he and our fathers and they were carried back to shechem and laid in a tomb that abraham uh, bought for a sum of money from the sons of hamor the father of shechem but when the time of promise drew near which god had sworn to abraham the people grew and multiplied in egypt so Through Joseph, the people of Israel were delivered and allowed to grow in Egypt. They came in as shepherds. The Egyptians, they despised shepherds. Um, But they loved Joseph. So we're going to love on your family too. So Pharaoh gave them the land of Goshen to dwell in for themselves. They grew. Uh, We read the story. They were having babies like crazy. And think about it, guys. Over time, 75 people grew to over 3 million during that 400 years in Egypt. God brought them to Egypt so they could grow from being a family to a nation. And it's hard to grow as nomads. Okay? Do you see why God uniquely did this and allowed this time? Okay? It's a rough life as a nomad. But here's what Joseph's testimony teaches us is that God will allow us to encounter times of difficulty in order to grow us. So God sees the big picture. He sees what is up ahead, that the famine is coming, and he would use Egypt to grow a family into a nation. And he would use Joseph's time in Egypt to raise him up as a deliverer. Even when things do not make sense, we know that we can trust God. So believing he is making all things work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's history, guys. It's factual. 
So they were growing in Egypt. Verse 18, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. So they saw them as a threat, okay, and made them slaves. Now you Jewish people, you're great in number. You can take us over. (laughs) You're going to be our slaves now. In verse 19, this man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Why were they doing that? Well, to reduce the population. Won't be as big of a threat. So the people of Israel are at a place uh, that they need a deliverer. And God is going to send one. Thank you, Joseph. Next, I call Moses. Look at verse 20. And at this time, Moses is born and was well pleasing to God. And he was brought up in the father's house for three months. But when he was set out, okay, and we know there was a basket uh, insulated with pitch in the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter took him in, brought him in, raised him up as her own, and she named him Moses. Uh, Interesting that most talked about figuring the whole Old Testament, guys. We don't even know his real name. Did you guys ever think about that? <laughs> we don't even know his real name. He's the most popular guy in the Old Testament. Anyways, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. I love that. So historians. Historians were, were learned men. Okay, they, went all, they all went to the highest schools that they had. Okay, military general, mighty in words and deeds, okay? Um, so we're told then in verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, it came, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So Moses leaves the palace and he's going to go visit the people of Israel, verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and he avenged him who oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. You see, they didn't understand that God had raised him up. And it would take 40 years (laughs) uh, until he would come a second time And then they finally began to understand how God was going to use Moses and what he would do through him. So verse 26, the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why why do you do wrong to one another? But he would, uh, he didn't, he Uh, who did this uh, to his neighbor wrong, pushed him away saying, you made, or who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at the saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush and in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for this place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So there's a key phrase here in verse 35. This Moses whom our fathers rejected. Pattern. You guys beginning to see it. You religious leaders, our history, you seeing what's going on here. You see the leaders of Israel have a long history of failing to recognize God's deliverers until they come a second time. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, you think I'm speaking against Moses you need to remember what Moses said. That's what Stephen's getting at here. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And he was speaking of the Messiah. So Moses was speaking of Jesus. In other words, even Moses said that there was one coming after him that they should listen to. Verse 38, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke with him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. And for this, Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to uh, the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, and as is written in the book of the prophets. So you say that I'm speaking against Moses, but in reality, your fathers rejected Moses even after he was with God glowing the Ten Commandments, the testimony that Moses teaches us, God sometimes has to break us down before he'll build us up. He will make, or he will seek to free us from pride, self, dependency, in order to make us dependent upon God. So next he's going to call the prophet Amos here, the witness, or to the witness stand, a farmer. Okay. And he quotes here in verse 42, Amos, Did you offer me slaughter or slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel. You also took up the tabernacle, or the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rephim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So here is how bad the rejection got, guys. Our fathers turned to idols, even to Molech, sacrificed their kids 
For that reason, God sent them to Babylon for 70 years of captivity. I gotta say it, abortion sucks. Okay, every time I read Amos or this, (laughs) what God allowed, you know, do this, you sacrifice to this idol, to this God, okay, you'll be blessed, you'll be rich, you'll have success, you'll be okay. That's the same thing we're doing today, guys. I know we don't like to think about it that way, but why is abortion even happening? Well, it's because I can't afford this baby. I want to be rich. I want it for myself. It's an inconvenience. It's not comfortable if I have a child right now. Okay? It's the same thing. We might not call it sacrificing to Moloch, but that's the same reason the people back then were killing their babies. Exact same reason we're doing it today. Shame on us. I wish we could, you know. (laughs) I, I wish we had a season in America of Babylon. Why? Because what did God do during that time? Well, Babylon was the capital of idolatry. Okay? We're getting close, aren't we? We really are. People are worshiping everything today. Want idols? Hey, we got idols. So many, they'll be coming out your nose. By and large, the people of Israel never went back to idols. Okay? They were forever cured from that point. You see, the prophet Amos teaches us that when we rebel against God, he will give us what we want until we're sick. We thought that was good. We thought that was one. But it's just getting us sick. It is no good for us. And then we'll turn back to him. You see, Stephen is basically saying there has never been a time in our history really when we've taken Moses seriously. He's calling these guys out. We uphold the law of Moses. It's all about Moses. We've never taken him seriously, guys. We've missed it. So don't accuse me of speaking against Moses. Amos, you can step down. I'm going to call Solomon up to the stand. And there's a transition now that takes place. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. And as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for, uh, for the God of Jacob. So he, the point started with the tabernacle here, God's presence. So God would pick Solomon. He's going to be the man to build the temple. Look at verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So God spoke through Solomon and Isaiah, telling us that he doesn't dwell in the temple made with hands. God never intended that we should develop relationship with a temple. That's not the point. Which is exactly what they had done. Isn't that why they're mad at Stephen? Okay, isn't that what they have the guys accusing him of? 
So he's pointing this out, <laughs> the fault of it. So they had done it all wrong, and once again, they missed the point entirely. The testimony of Solomon teaches us that our relationship with God, okay, he does not want to get distracted or sidetracked by any physical thing, okay? What he cares about is relationship, not all the stuff. Now I wonder if they were at all impressed with Stephen. Being a Grecian Jew, okay, would have had such a grasp on their history, okay? I don't know, this is pretty good, isn't it? Pretty thorough. He knew the word, he knew Jewish history. And he was able to apply it, right? Debate it. So if they were at all, something changes drastically in verse 51 here. Okay, here's where Stephen gets bold. In many Bible commentators I read this last week, they think that it's this point in the sermon that Stephen sensed the rejection. <laughs> They're just closed. They don't want to reason. They don't want to hear. They don't want to think. They've already made up their mind. Which leads him to say, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of, you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you know um, or now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So you're just like our fathers. You rejected and killed the prophets. You rejected and you killed Jesus, the Messiah. So this is when they lose it. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him in one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. As we close, see what Stephen teaches us in his dying moments here. One of the things is when people are coming against you, you should look up. That's what Stephen did. And they're coming at me. Look up. Set your mind on things above, not the things on the earth. So seeing things from a heavenly perspective helps a lot when you're being attacked. Secondly, he saw Jesus standing. Jesus normally sitting. He sat down in terms of redemption, right? It's finished. The work is done. <laughs> I'm sitting down. But he gets up when his children are in trouble. Standing ovation, right? Standing to welcome Stephen. Well done, my good and faithful 
Son. And the third thing that we can see here is Stephen reflected Jesus in his death. Right? Receive my spirit. Father, forgive them. I love that example. How can a person do that? It's only in relationship with Jesus Christ. I think of John Stoffel. You know, make sure to forgive this man. To be in that place. Why? It's because Johnny knew Jesus Christ, had relationship with God Almighty. And the fourth thing is, his life was not a waste. It's not a waste. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to waste my life. Do you want to waste your life? No. Our life is short. It's really short. This life is but a vapor. We really don't know how much longer we have. We don't know if we have tomorrow. But don't waste what you've been given. Life is a gift. And I love it. You know? Do you guys think that Stephen could have went a different direction as he was standing before the council? Try to defend himself a little bit? Try to get out of what might happen? Absolutely. But he wasn't going to waste his life. And as a result... There ends up being one convert, right? Saul. Let me tell you what, that's a big catch. That's a big catch. So Father, there's a lot here set before us this morning. It's a great history lesson. And we thank you for all the application that is given in it. And would you please, for my brothers and my sisters and myself, God, help us see the big picture. I think we have the same tendencies that these religious leaders, this council, were guilty of. We can get so short-sighted that we lose perspective. We miss what really matters. Please forgive us of that. Help us to see the big picture. And we thank you that that big picture involves something that is real and that is a relationship with you that is not just for this life (laughs) but starts in this life and will go on forever and ever and ever. We know this life is short but eternity, we can't even fathom that truth, that reality. But it's good to know you now and it's going to be so good to be with you forever. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for men like Stephen who are alive today. They're standing strong in proclaiming truth, even though it may mean certain death. But we thank you that that death for the believer, like it's said here for us today, that he just fell asleep. There's no real dying for the believer. We just get to go on to glory. We get to be with you. We look so forward to that day and we look so forward to the day that we get to be with loved ones once again who knew you, who had that relationship with you. And God, in this life that we don't want to waste, there are friends and family that still need to know you. And we pray in light of the holiday season with the celebration of the resurrection just around the corner for us, God, may we speak of you And share with others that you are truly alive. That you have overcome sin, death, 
and hell. And there is a gift of eternal life. There's a relationship that you, Father, desire to extend to all people. Let us share that good news boldly for your glory, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.